It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. You don't have to look hard these days to find adults in power who are acting like children and people who should know better saying and doing outlandish things. What has happened to our institutions and our leaders? Forget the information. Look at reputation and look at people's social fears. And that's what social media did. It really ramped up those concerns so that even people with perfect security and high salaries are acting like cowards. Over the last few years, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt has been asking the question, why is everything so stupid? And he's come up with some answers. Social media is a big piece of the puzzle, but it's much more complicated than that. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In this onstage interview, Haidt brings to life his recent Atlantic article, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. He pinpoints just what is so distorting about communication in this era and identifies the consequences, which aren't always obvious. He also speculates on how we might get back to something resembling normalcy. The editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, interviews Haidt and takes questions from the audience. Here's Goldberg. Why don't we start with stupid? Um, start with stupid. Um, the, um, when you say things have gotten stupid, uh, the decade of stupid, tell everyone, I assume some of you haven't read the article, uh, tell everyone what you mean by stupid exactly, because you're, you're not saying that the average IQ of Americans has gone down, although we all know people who we suspect that to be true of. Um, but talk about, uh, talk about what you mean by the stupid decade. Sure. Um, so first, Jeff, uh, thanks so much. The other part of the, of the backstory to how this article got started was that I was supposed to be writing a book on capitalism. I have a contract to write it. It was due five years ago. I had a sabbatical last year. I was going to finally write it. But I kept... I just kept getting haunted by the question, what the hell is happening to our country? And I kept creating new Evernote files, like, here's a piece of it, and, and, and you know, here's how the social psychology explains this weird thing that's happening. And I had eight of them, and I pitched them to Don Peck, as my editor at The Atlantic. I said, Don, I, I want to write eight articles on why everything's going haywire. And Don said, oh, you know, this, this is very interesting. We talked about it, so let me run this by Jeff. And Jeff said, don't write eight, write one. Just write one big one. And it's really a testament to The Atlantic. Smart, the smart. <laughs> But The Atlantic is really the only place that one can write something that has this, this kind of reach and this kind of effect. Even the New York Times wouldn't, you know, it, it just wouldn't keep things going for as long as The Atlantic can. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, as for what I mean by stupid, so dictionary definitions, psychological definitions of stupidity are the opposite of intelligence. And it's if you, it's basically the inability to reach your own goals because of your own cognitive limitations. If you keep doing things that stop you from achieving your own goals, you're stupid. And what I began seeing, you know, I'm a professor at a university. I love universities. Universities are full of smart people, and universities have long been respected as these well, respected institutions that we pay a lot of money to send our kids to, and we bribe people to get them into the right ones, and all sorts <laughs> of things like that. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, beginning in 2014, and then with an explosion in 2015, we started doing incredibly stupid things. And smart people would implement policies and mandatory trainings and bias response teams and all these 
policies in response to pressure from activist students, policies that we know don't work, that often we know make things worse, but we would do them anyway, in university after university, year after year. This is really stupid. Why do we keep doing this? And so that was what the Coddling the American Mind was about in 2015. And then these same dynamics rolled out. You know, a lot of people said, oh, come on, you're just cherry picking elite schools. And when these kids, you know, when they graduate, they can't do this at, you know, Goldman Sachs. They can't do this at Google or at the Atlantic. Like, they're going to have to, you know, grow up and get with the program and start doing something of value to others. And we said, we'll see. Um, and then it did roll out, first into journalism, this is the first spectacular case, uh, where editors were doing stupid things, like at the Atlantic. I mean, I mean the, at the New York Times, sorry. <laughs> so thank you there for is... coming, and uh, I don't even know him. Yeah, this is... I don't know what I'm doing up here. Yeah. But the, the Atlantic did not fire its editor because uh, some young staffers demanded it. Whereas the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, a lot, many other top uh, journalism outlets did this, exactly the same as, as universities. So it's like, why are all of our institutions doing stupid things at the same time, in the same way, and betraying their missions? And when you say, just, just to clarify, the institutions, you mean the full range of liberal, small l, institution, yes. the, the, the culture setting institutions. The way I think about it is a society requires institutions and some of them we call democratic institutions like Congress, elections, election boards, those are all democratic institutions and the Atlantic's been fantastic at writing about the corruption of those. Um, and then the others are epistemic institutions. They are the ones that generate knowledge and preeminently it's universities and the broader research community and it's journalism and it's the courts and it's certain government agencies. Those are the four main ones that Jonathan Rauch talks about in his incredible book, The Constitution of Knowledge. That's what we mean. Right, okay. Um, so go on, so what did you, one thing that you've pointed out is that, again, people have not gotten stupid, but that the, the, the landscape has gotten stupid because it's the absence of smartness. Why? So we talk about, and let's talk about it in theory, you know, you, why did activist students, let's say, from a small portion of the American population, you know, you talk about, uh, you could divide the uh, American public politically into seven or so categories, from the, the people from the leftmost category, progressive activists, which represent about eight, seven, eight percent yeah. of the population, um, disproportionate influence in universities, journalism, museums, libraries, and so on. Uh, why did this push in, and what did they push out? Right. So, um, so I'm a social psychologist who, who has been really concerned about the loss of viewpoint diversity in universities. I'm a big fan of John Stuart Mill, who, who in On Liberty, he says, he who knows only his own side of the case knows, knows little of that. How you, you have to have people pushing against each other in order to find the truth. We're all subject to confirmation bias. We're all really good at finding evidence for what we already believe. We need other people on the other side to question us, to say, well, wait a second, what about this study? Or what about this flaw in your argument? We have to have that, otherwise we can't do our work. And this is ensconced in Jewish tradition, Jewish wisdom, where you have Torah scholars debating against each other. So this is the way that flawed individuals actually are able to become much smarter collectively. So what happened, I believe, in the early 2010s, and this is what the heart of the article was, 
was uh, Facebook, Twitter, these platforms that go back to 2004, th that region, they weren't harmful at first, but they made certain changes in 2009. Facebook adds the like button, Twitter adds the retweet button, they copy each other's innovations. Social media wasn't super viralized before then. It wasn't possible to say something and 24 hours later, you're either an internet hero or villain. That had to wait until Justine Sacco in 2014. She gets on a plane, she tweets a bad joke, she lands in Johannesburg, and by then she's the global villain, she's fired the next day. That was not possible before 2009. But by, once you get this hyper-viralized social media, now anyone can be attacked, ridiculed in a way that goes global within a day. And once you have this threat of reputational destruction, social media democratized uh, intimidation and freed it from accountability. Anyone can say anything nasty and untrue about anyone else, no accountability. My argument is it's the arrival of this low-level intimidation. That's what changed everything. Because now people, and you hear this phrase ever since 2014, walking on eggshells. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. If I say one word wrong, it's going to blow up. And when people stop speaking up, that's when you lose the magic of the John Stuart Mill dynamic. That's when institutions get stupid. So stupid fills the vacuum. Stupid is a structural problem when you no longer have people challenging their others' confirmation bias. Let's go back to... Wait, I'm supposed yeah. to speak in plain terms. You're right, stupid fills the vacuum. Okay, thank you very much. Let's go back to, because you talk about this directly, let's go back to uh, James Madison and his understanding let me, let me phrase it this way. You'll understand what I mean. James Madison's understanding of social media. Yeah. Uh, obviously lived long before social media. Um, but for James Madison, the arrival of the daily newspaper was a frightening event because he thought that people were going to be given more information they could handle in, in too quick a, a way. So talk about, talk about Madison and his fear of what we have now um, his prediction or fear of what we have now, and why he set up government the way he did. That's right. So the founding fathers were extraordinarily good psychologists and historians, given the limited number of books they could get from London each month. And they read everything they could about the history of politics. They read Plato and Aristotle on democracy. They knew that democracies blow up. They, uh, he has a line, democracies have ever been as violent in their deaths as they have been short-lived in their lives, something like that. So they knew that what they were trying to do was design something for which there's very little margin for error. This has never worked in the past for very long, but we're gonna try to tweak things, set things up so that this can work for a very long time. And the enemy, the problem, the threat was faction. That was Madison's word for partisanship, but a kind of partisanship where, as he says in Federalist 10, that people are, we're so prone to faction, to forming teams that are more concerned to vex and oppress each other than to work for the common good, it's something like that. So that's a line that you might have heard. That's a very famous line about faction. But if you go back to Federalist 10, the very next sentence is something like, um, and um, you know, we are, people are so prone to faction that where no substantive occasion presents itself, the most trivialing and trifling matters will become an object of their most violent hatreds. And that's Twitter. Like he knew, you know, he knew this is what this is what we're prone to. And so the whole design, the whole constitutional design process was let's slow things down. Democracies have passionate mobs ruled by the demos. Really? You want rule by the people, like straight out rule? Like, no, of course you don't. 
You want rule by their elected representatives who are responsible to the people every two or four years, but you don't want the people making policy. And that's what, that's what the design was supposed to be. Um, but now with Twitter, they're actually, you know, people are now afraid of their, of their constituents. I have to just share a story here. Um, I, I was invited to testify before a Senate Judiciary Committee that was considering a bill on making the platforms be accountable and transparent and have to expose, you know, uh, uh, say what they're doing and, and, and share their data. And Senator Ossoff asked me a question. He says, so Professor Haidt, uh, how would you say this is affecting our elites? Like for example, our elected representatives, how do you think social media is affecting them? <laughs> and I was thinking of Ted Cruz, there's a little, you know, these, there's millions of little micro moments on Twitter. Ted Cruz was caught giving a bombastic speech. He sits down, he pulls out his phone and a photographer behind him sees he's checking what people said about the speech he just gave. In other words, his audience is not the people in the chamber, he's speaking to Twitter, okay? So I, I'm thinking that, I decide not to mention his name, I just describe, to say, oh yes, I think this is very serious and here's what it could do. Okay, fine, and I'm testifying remotely here. Um, so then it, it's open to anyone in the room who wants to ask a question, any center in the room. Guess who stands up? Ted Cruz. And what does he do with his five minutes? Does he ask me a question? No, he spends five minutes talking about his Twitter follower count and how it went up and it went down and this must show censorship. All he cared about was Twitter. He's a US senator. So this is the exact thing Madison was afraid of. How do you fix it? Get rid of Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> that's not structural, that's... <laughs> no, but, but actually, you know what? Let me, let me ask you this, because the, uh, the, uh, the subject is stupidity. Okay, so I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe you do. Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. These are profoundly stupid people. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that for a while. I mean, like, like they don't know. They don't know anything. They don't, they don't know how to spell, much less anything. No, and, 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 but the question is, are, are we imagining a time in the not so distant past when people like that, of that level, couldn't make it through the filtration processes of democracy? Meaning the local party would never let a person like that get nominated. They would, the, the, the voters would look at it and say, well, that's an idiot. Why would we send that person to Congress? Or, or, or are we imagining a more Madisonian time that never existed? Well, so you know, David Brooks has been covering Congress for a long time, and he, he said a few years ago, I don't know if he'd still say it, but he said a few years ago, the quality of the people going to Congress is much higher than it used to be when he first started covering it. Mm. Much less alcoholism, womanizing, you know, just mm -hmm. uh, um, that, the, that they're, they're serious, hardworking people for the, for the most part. So I think the overall the problem isn't the average level in Congress. Now, people like Boebert and Green, you could, in prior times, you could certainly have people with low IQ, but they would be, you'd be filtered out for being just radical and destructive. The parties, the parties had certain incentives. And now, and here's, and here's the big change that can explain the characters like that, um, as, as Yuval Levin says, our institutions used to be formative. And if you worked at the Times or the Atlantic for a number of years, you'd come out and people would know something about you because you were shaped by those institutions. But Levin says, but now, thanks to social media, our institutions are now platforms for performance. They become performative, not formative. And so Fox News in particular, 
and I argue this, I say this in the essay, Fox News in particular has made the Republican Party the stupid party. That is, because so many of them are playing to Fox News, they're doing things that subvert even the goals of the party because right. they each have their own platform. They can make a lot of money. They can get a lot of fame. So it's made the Republican Party the stupid party, but you know, at this audience, most people are going to lean left and are nodding their head, and I'm confirming what you think. But the, I think the most subversive or con possibly controversial thing I said in the essay was, well, the Democratic Party is not the stupid party. They have moderates. They have debates, and the moderates usually win the debates. The problem is the cultural left. The problem is exactly what Jeff opened with here. It's that in almost every organization that's hiring people from Yale and Smith and, and small colleges that have this, this you know, woke ideology, this, this um, you know, call out uh, performance ideology. Or illiberalism. And it's the best illiberal, yeah. yeah. Uh, an Ill, right, you, there's an illiberal right. We've all been, we've been reading a lot in the Atlantic about the illiberal right, but there's also an illiberal left, not at the Democratic Party so much. It's in the cultural institutions. And so what I witnessed was progressive institution after progressive institution getting stupid in exactly the same way. And there was just an article two weeks ago in The Intercept, it was something like how, you know, how all progressive social justice organizations are now dysfunctional. I think it was called The Elephant in the Zoom was the title of the article, just look it up. But it was about how every social justice organization, you know, from the ACLU to reproductive rights, everything, which are very important organizations, they can't really do anything because all day long, it's, and the word was uh, you know, endless performative micro battles. It's always battling over someone used a word, and now all day we have to talk about why somebody used the word and are we going to fire them. Right, so, and the example in that piece was the, one of the big examples of the Guttmacher Institute, a pro-choice think tank, right at the moment when you know, something seismic is happening on these issues, they're fighting with each other over the use of are, are trans rights rele, relevant to, to abortion rights and how do we talk about men who have babies and, and, and right. it's all very interesting but it's, it's, it's sort of the rearranging the deck chairs. That's right, and it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Twitter and Slack in particular. Those are the things that channel the... Right, no, 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 that's very interesting. But come back to this, um, come back to the, the, the Boebert question or the Marjorie Taylor Greene question. Uh, because I, my own view, and tell me if I'm wrong, the, 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 it's kind of this weird sort of act of prestidigitation. Like, look at these lunatics over here, and they say crazy stuff, and Jewish space lasers, and whatever, you know. And, and I mean, Lauren Bubbard said that um, there should be no separation of church and state. I, I, you know, I mean, like, these, these But the interesting thing is, and, and I'm, I'm very, very interested in this, in this question, it's the people who know better. Not the people who don't know better, you know. Um, the people who know better, um, and this is much or most of the Republican Party, they know that they know that the previous president is a mentally ill authoritarian, right? Um, but they don't say it because of mobbing, right? That the the party the party structure itself doesn't protect them. The the the, the fear of the mob motivates everything. So talk about talk about how fear of the mob um, relates to democratic processes, because that's what we're talking about, and, and the accelerant that Facebook and Twitter might be. Yeah. So, so a central idea in the essay is that we now live in the post-Babel world. The Tower of Babel, the story about how God punishes humanity for its hubris by making us all speak different languages. There's no more a sense of shared meaning. We can't really communicate. So I argue that around 2014, we entered the post-Babel world. Trump didn't cause it, 
but he could never have gotten elected in a pre-Babel world where the things he said were just so wacko that it just, he couldn't have won the election. The, the broad middle would have filtered him out, in other words. That, yeah, and, yeah, and, and, um, yeah, and you know, narratives would form about him that would be more lasting. So we're in the, in the post-Babel world. And so the way that I urge people to think about this is take a question like Jeff's and think about what your normal common sense answer is. Like, well, you know, they're engaged in a struggle with the Democrats and it's us versus them and it's zero sum and okay, you know, we'll go along and oh, what a you know, slippery slope. And so you can, explain, you can explain why people who know better would go along in the pre-Babel world. Okay, now, add in, everyone in the world has a dart gun. Twitter, is, Twitter and Facebook, the metaphor in the, in the essay is, social media is like everyone has a little dart gun and they can shoot as many darts as they want and the darts don't kill you, but they hurt. And you know, Jeff and I were talking at breakfast. You know, we, you know, anybody leading anything is full of darts. Jeff gets, you know, you, you, can, you know, you can tweet, I think democracy is good and I'm sure you would get slammed for that. <laughs> yeah, yes, so, yes, yeah. Um, unbelievably it happens, right. So anyway, the point is that um, now, so take Republicans who know better, and you know, we, we know many of them know better, and, and, but they, they go along. Now, imagine them making the decision where if they do anything for even a moment to suggest nuance, to suggest maybe this is a mistake, they're gonna be hit with so many darts so quickly. And here's why it's so powerful. There's a principle in behaviorism, which is the power of training. You can train an animal very, very quickly to do amazing things if you give it tiny little reinforcements immediately. Mm. If you give it a big reinforcement a minute later, no good. <laughs> but if you give it a tiny little food pellet within three seconds, you can train a pigeon to play ping pong in a day. I, that, literally, that's what B.F. Skinner did, okay? <laughs> so now imagine all of, these, all of these politicians and all of us responding, you say something, and you get hit with darts within seconds. So Ted Cruz, go, I mean, this was a dopamine response. He, he, was, was, he was in search of a dopamine a, hit. Well, he's a pigeon being trained by his own followers. Right, which is antithetical to democracy, where to one, leadership. to That's leadership, right. where he's supposed to actually help instruct what democracy is. So let's, we're gonna go to questions in a couple of minutes, but, uh, but talk about Solutions. I mean, there's a lot of people who wake up in the morning who say, boy, if I just had one wish, it would be to make Twitter disappear and not be replaced by something worse, obviously. Uh, but we can't make Twitter disappear, and we can't, um, we can't go back in time and convince Mark Zuckerberg that maybe universal instantaneous communication isn't a great thing. Maybe the human brain can't handle that much instantaneous communication. We're not going to do that, but what do you do? if we're gonna save a democracy? So, so um, uh, democracy is a complex dynamical system. What I mean by that is some things are mechanical systems like a clock, and if it's broken, our clock seems to be broken, well we need to fix the gears. What's the, what's the gear that's broken? Let's fix that. But our democracy is not a clock. It's a complex dynamical system like the weather or the economy in which there are parameter changes. And if you raise the temperature globally, you're gonna have all kinds of different systems behaving differently. So you have to change parameters. Lower CO2, that's a parameter change. In democracy, there are parameter changes. So what I argue in the essay is we have, there's three, sort of three reform imperatives that would change parameters. One is we have to harden democratic institutions 
so that they're less responsive to toxic social media pressures of the moment in the way that Madison feared. So there's a whole bunch of reforms, and you know what those are. You know, it's obviously like gerrymandering reform, reliable elections certified not by partisans, but by, so harden democratic institutions so that they can function in this crazy new era. Uh, two um, is reform social media so that it's less toxic um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a moment. And then three is prepare the next generation because Gen Z bears none of the blame for what's happened here, but we're passing on to them this much harder democracy, much more polarized, and we denied them an entire childhood of learning how to work out differences on their own. They've always been supervised, always been protected. Um, uh, you know, conflict is bullying, we're gonna stop that. So we've gotta change what we're doing to the next generation in order for them to be able to develop the art of association that Tocqueville said was the key to American success. So on the social media front, the big things, um, certainly sending Mark Zuckerberg to Mars would be helpful. Um, um, but since we can't do that. Um, uh, yet, big, yet, yet, yet. <laughs> uh, so the big ones, the big ones that I argued for um, are the, the biggest one of all, I believe, is um, identity authentication. Uh, not you have to post with your real name, but just as you can't just open a bank account with a bag of money and a fake name, banks have no your customer laws, these platforms are now so systemically important for our democracy, and they get this incredible boon of Section 230 where they can't be sued. So how about if you want this incredible congressional umbrella that you were given in the 90s, how about you have a minimal obligation to know your customers? It just doesn't mean that you, that you have to show your, thank you, it doesn't mean you have to show your driver's license to Facebook, although that is one option. Um, there's all kinds of ways. The, the industry is so smart. There are all kinds of ways of verifying that you're a human being, not a bot, that you're over 18 or whatever the age should be, that you're in a particular country. There's all kinds of ways of doing it with networks of other people to vouch for you, with facial morphography. There are lots of different ways. So as long as a platform says, here are three ways that you can verify that you're a person, and at that point, now you can post. So anyone can open a Facebook account, let's say, and look, but in order to put stuff out there, which is what the Russians are doing, which is what trolls are doing, which is what bad actors are doing, in order to do that, you have to at least show you're a human being. That would be huge. That would eliminate most of the, of the trolls, most of the bots. Um, now, of course, many people do bad stuff under their real name, so it wouldn't solve it, but, but things like that are parameter changes. there's some built-in possibility of accountability if it's your real name. That's right. Yeah, but let me ask you, just before the questions, let me ask you a, a devil's advocate question here, which is the argument in favor of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and the democratization that they've brought. Previously, there were three television networks, four national newspapers, a couple of magazines. Um, they served as gatekeepers. They, they, were the filter, they were the filters. Um, a lot of bad stuff was kept out of the discourse. Nobody was publishing the American Nazi Party you know, a, 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 when, when it was just the mainstream so-called media. Um, but they also kept out other people, what we would now refer to as marginalized groups, um, race, ethnicity, otherwise. Uh, how do you engineer social media so that we don't go back to a point where a, I mean, I'm, in the 40s and 50s, a black person probably couldn't get an op-ed into the New York Times, rare occasions. We don't wanna go back to a period like that. So how do you protect 
another aspect of democracy? Sure. So first, we have to distinguish between the internet and social media. So the internet is this vast, amazing, wonderful thing. Um, and if I asked you all, you know, if we could go back to 19, the early 1990s, and I said, you know, here's, here's three things that you might, three boxes you might open. The first is the internet. And any box you open, it's gonna take about 10 to 15 hours of your week. Okay, so the internet. Are you glad we, raise your hand if you're glad we have the internet. That, okay, everyone is, amazing. And the internet solved that problem that you're talking about. And we had, it right away, we got blogs, websites, anyone can say anything, you know, and then you get YouTube and you get all sorts of wonderful things. So that problem was solved by the internet, okay? Um, the next box that we might open um, is called the smartphone. And if you open it, you're gonna spend another 10 to 15 hours of your week on your smartphone. So now we're up to about 20 or 30 hours of your week you're spending on smartphone and internet. Um, now you get a lot for it. What do you think? Are you glad we have smartphones? Raise your hand if you're glad we have smartphones. Okay, yeah, most of us are, but not, not everybody. Okay, so now imagine a world in which we have the internet and blogs and smartphones and Zoom and, and multiplayer, we've got all this stuff, 20 to 30 hours a week. Now here's the third box, social media in which you are the product, not the customer, and in which you are incentivized to post by the, by the possibility of prestige follower accounts, but it's gonna take an extra 10 to 15 hours of your week, and there's a good chance it's gonna make you depressed, anxious, and suicidal. <laughs> what do you think? Who wants that, okay? So I don't think, so I really don't think we should give social media credit for what the internet did much better than social media. I think you kind of fixed the results there a little bit at the end with the, with the whole suicidal business, but yeah. No, 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 I, 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 absolutely, I mean, I'm dispositionally Amish, so I, I don't even, I'm, I'm still open on the question of electricity myself, yeah, yeah, I don't even know if electricity is a good thing, but, uh, but that's, 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 that's a very interesting, so you do see the possibility of reform and not eradication of these things, yeah. Yeah, so we can never go back the question, so the original dream of, of the internet and then social media was the greatest gift to democracy. Everyone has a voice, everyone, you know, the magic of democracy when everyone's included. So there is an imaginable future. There's a theoretical future for America where social media and all these other things give us better democracy than we've ever had. Now, I don't know if we can get there from here. I think we have to try, mm -hmm. um, but it is definitely possible. But let me point out just one final point here is the dream was everyone has a voice. It allows everyone to be part of the conversation. Is that the reality? Is that what happened? Social media, and in particular Twitter, but also Facebook and Slack, everybody doesn't participate. It was always more the, the extremes, the political activists on the right, it was always more that before social media. And then when everyone gets a dart gun, most of us don't want to shoot anybody. But the far right and the far left do. Also trolls, men who have personality disorders and enjoy harassing people. So they get a huge voice. Russian intelligence agents, they get a huge voice. So those are the four groups that have, it's been a boon to those four groups. Who is mostly attacked? Certainly leaders of any institution, moderates on each side, and blacks and women. I mean, there, you don't need research, there is research, but. But if you're, if you're a black journalist or a female journalist, you get a lot more harassment than anyone else. So I think the idea that, oh, it's gonna democratize, everyone gets a voice, that has been just a nightmare. Right. Uh, questions? Back there. Just, and then we'll come down here and, I, and I make, enjoy make following your question you on short and in the form of a question. <laughs> no, 
So um, I'm an elected Republican in charge of elections, and that's been interesting. Wow, every head just turned there, boy. Yeah. <laughs> so in private, three out of four know the election wasn't stolen. But the incentive structure is such that they're all behaving rationally in a manner of speaking, and I'm the irrational one. But that's a democratic institution. So why, for the left analog, why are newspapers doing it? Why are schools doing it? Where it's not like tenure or being an editor is a democratic process and you need to win a primary amidst you know, not representative voters. Yes, thank you. Because uh, right, the question is, you know, why don't any university presidents stand up for academic values? Why don't tenured professors who can't be fired, why don't they stand up? And I think the answer is that we're all really, really concerned about our reputations. And even if you don't have to worry about losing your job and your health insurance, um, we are all so afraid of our reputations. And this is doubly true for teenagers who live in an intense world. Um, and so that's sort of, again, the point of my article is if you take, if you, everybody's, everybody's focusing on misinformation. Everybody's acting like a cognitive psychologist. What's the role of misinformation? That's important, that's relevant, but I think much more important is to be a social psychologist and say, forget the information. Look at reputation and look at people's social fears. And that's what social media did. It really ramped up those concerns so that even people with perfect security and high salaries are acting like cowards. Social, social media, in other words, gives everybody the possibility of experiencing social death. Yeah, that's and right. social death is in many ways death for social animals. That's, exactly, that's right. Uh, the, yes, ma'am, over here. Oh, I'm sorry, you have a mic. Yeah, how about there, and then we'll go there. Jeffrey, fascinating conversation. Uh, absolutely spectacular. My biggest uh, concern is what impact has this had on our broken political system and the ugliness, partisanship, uh, and what can we do about it? So, so that's where we have to look both at the structural reforms. Without the structural reforms, I think we can't, we can't solve this problem. Um, and in, in, in my article, I talked about these structural reforms that would make more room, that would make social media less intimidating, it would leave more room for people to act. But what I failed to do, and I wish I had done, is talk about what individuals can do no matter what. And, um, and that was a mistake on my part, because I was, I mean, the article is incredibly depressing, right, for those who read it. Um, and, and Jonathan Rauch, uh, uh, who I, I love, um, Jonathan Rauch said to me, no, you know, this is too pessimistic. Like, people have agency, and wherever you are, you can be a, re a Republican elected official, and you can know that people are gonna yell and scream at you, but you still have the ability to be courageous, and guess what? In the long run, even if it hurts at first, in the long run, you're gonna end up being much more respected. So, uh, so we all, once you understand the game, put it this way, once you understand the game, and you understand the short-term effect is you say something and all these people are saying what a horrible person you are and you should be fired. This, that's in the first couple days. Once you understand that, if you just, just don't even look for two or three days, the attack party is gonna move on tomorrow to somebody else. So if you just don't even look for a couple of days um, and you understand this is not representative, um, then you can survive it more. And we are beginning to see more leaders, especially in the corporate world, not university yet, but in the corporate world, more leaders are saying, as it has happened at the Washington Post, first response, oh my God, this guy retweeted a joke. Oh, uh, okay, some people are, are, mad at me, are mad at me. Okay, we'll put him on, on leave without pay for a month, which is the typical thing. 
And then, then the world gets mad at the editor. Okay, this is a case where actually the pressure might have worked, where the, the world gets <laughs> mad at the editor for doing this, and the editor realizes, um, oh, actually, yeah, the woman who was like, tweeting all these terrible things about the post, maybe we should fire her. Now, maybe actually, Jeff, is, you know the story from the inside more. Is that what happened? Um, I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know if it was outside pressure that motivated them to fire her. I think it was, you know, there's there, something to be said about waiting and thinking and not reacting. I think the first days are panic. The human fight or flight response comes into play. And then after a while, and I think it's also training of the last couple of years. I mean, I, 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 I do know something about this story. And I think what happened was the leadership looked at each other and said, you know what? In the old days, we would call her behavior insubordination. And in, in a hierarchical organization like this, this is a corporation and you have rules and she's not following the rules, so let's just go to the lawyers and see if we can fire her. But, uh, and, and I think that's different than a couple of years ago. Exactly. Uh, and so like, there, is a, there is a training process that's, that's going on. On the other hand, I would just push back on one thing. I want to come to that uh, woman right there, if you can get a mic up to there. Uh, you had your hand up that I called on you before. Um, the, uh, there is, um, I think you're over-optimistic about brave human bravery. I mean, I think Cassidy Hutchinson is so much more brave, has to be so much more brave now than she would have had to have been 10 years ago you know, or 20 years ago, and there is no guarantee that she's going to remember it as a hero. I like to think and say that, you know, one day there's going to be a statue to Liz Cheney in Washington, not because of her policy positions necessarily, but because look at this behavior. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, given, and, and, and both of those people, Liz Cheney and Cassidy Hutchinson, actually have as a foe the preeminent bully in the world, right? I mean, the, the, I mean, you could argue that Vladimir Putin is a bully through use of tanks, okay, I got that. But, but the pre preeminent manipulator of human emotion to, to bully someone into silence is going directly at them. And I, I don't know, it just seems much harder than, than, than you're suggesting. And I'll, just, I'll also just add in, the really ominous threat that I see right on the horizon is political violence that there was a lot of that in the, six, in the late 60s, early 70s, and then it kind of disappeared. After the Reagan assassination attempt, there hasn't been much in the way of assassinations. But now that many activists on both sides think it's appropriate to go to, private, to, go to people's homes and threaten them and their children, now that we're seeing this on both mm -hmm. sides, it's just a matter of time before people with guns actually shoot or plant bombs. And once that happens, now to stand up means you're putting your children at physical risk. By the way, just as an asterisk about how weird the world is, Reagan's would-be assassin now has a Twitter account, and he's tweeting. I mean, it's God. like you can't, you can't make this stuff up. No, you can't make it up anymore. Um, there, yes, ma'am. Um, hi, guys. Oh, it's you. Hi, it's you. Oh. <laughs> so, um, Jonathan, it was an awesome article, and Jeffrey, thank you for encouraging Jonathan to write it. But, you know, you talk about progressive activists, what, 8%, and then on the other side is what, conservative? Devoted conservatives. Around they're seven. like seven, It's eight. about the same, yeah. So obviously they're dominating social media platforms like Twitter. At the same time in the piece, you mentioned a survey by an organization called More in, More in Common that said 77% of respondents say we don't, ha our differences are not so great that we can't figure out things together. But you talk about the silence, silenced ma majority of moderate Americans. So what outlets do they have? And do you think this calls for a new 
social media platform where the rules are different, where people get kicked off if they're not respectful, where people don't get canceled because they accidentally say something stupid that will really encourage civil discourse and not make it an oxymoron anymore. Yes, no, thank you, Katie. Um, the, um, the, um, so the, this More in Common uh, survey is a wonderful survey. Just look it up, More in Common Hidden Tribes. It's very helpful for understanding what's going on. And as Katie said, they talk about these seven groups, the two extremes are the ones who are very aggressive. The other groups, the sort of the middle 70 or 80%, they call the exhausted majority. Uh, and that's what most Americans are. And, um, and the question is, one possibility is how do we give them more voice? And that would certainly help. And an interesting fact about our, our, our country is that they really do have a lot of voice, but only one day every two years. And this is the problem for the Democrats, that, the, that the, they can win victory after victory in school boards and all sorts of things. They can get policies in that most people hate, but then come election day, they get voted out of office. I really want to see the Republicans lose three times in a row so that they, so the reform-minded elements will dominate, but I've come to realize in the last few months that's never going to happen because voters, they get to express themselves and they often hate what the cultural left is doing. So we've got the crazy Republican Party and the extreme cultural left and we're stuck in the middle. Um, I think that if we had different social media, it would help, but most people don't want to be out there expressing their views in that way. Um, they just want to live their lives. They don't want to be out there um, pontificating or getting in the fight. Um, I do think, so one big structural change that would go towards what you're suggesting, um, I, I, I interviewed Frank McCourt two days ago here. Um, some of you may have been at that session. Frank has this big idea for how Web2 made design choices that basically encouraged companies to suck up data and sell it and allow companies and people to manipulate other people. But if we had a Web3 based on blockchain in which you can control the access to information and, and you can rescind access, web, blockchain makes possible whole different kinds of platforms that we can't even imagine that where it would be much easier to design the kind of interaction you're talking about. So I think there is hope, uh, not in the next five years that things will get better on social media, but I think 20 years from now, it's not gonna look anything like it does today. We can't really imagine it. But if Frank succeeds, or if we have this new Web3, then a lot of better options become available. All right, we have time for one more question. I'm sorry, Did you, uh, yeah, here, I guess. Sorry, and there's just too many questions. Jonathan, when I mean, I've just said, but, you know, but I mean, I'm happy to we'll ha hang out here afterwards if people with questions want to come up afterwards and talk with us. Please go ahead. Jonathan, when your article first came out, I was at first not convinced. I think I've become more convinced over the last couple of months. But I continue to wrestle this question about what's driving divisiveness. And your argument is that social media and the structure of social media is driving divisiveness. And yet, I look at identity politics as one of the, the drivers of divisiveness. And what's the cause and effect here? I mean, is social media driving identity politics, or is social media simply reflecting identity politics? Yeah, thank you. Um, I wrote an article in 2014 with a political scientist, Sam Abrams, um, listing, saying, what's happened? Why are we getting so polarized? And we listed 10 causes, one of which was changes in the media environment, including cable TV, which had a big effect on the Republicans. And we said cable TV and social media. So one of the 10 was this media environment. Um, the loss of a common enemy, the, you know, when the Cold War ended, rising education. College educated people like to fight about words. 
Working class people don't have time for that. Um, rising immigration and diversity. There are all these reasons why we're becoming more polarized that have nothing to do with social media. But on almost all of them, once you add in the newly hyper-viralized social media, the people with dark guns, a lot of them go into warp drive and they become much weirder and more powerful. So let's take identity politics. So these ideas, these ideas that everything is power, um, everything is groups contesting for power, this is Michel Foucault, who was confined in a kind of a tokamak chamber uh, within certain departments of the university from the 1980s until 2014. And so these ideas have been there all along about you know, everything is oppression, power, white supremacy, culture, all this. this. So we, were, but we had better forms of identity politics, like multiculturalism, like we were supposed to explore other cultures. It was not cultural appropriation to wear a shirt from another country. So, what happens in 2014 is social media knocks down all the walls. So these ideas that were in the gender studies department, they were in a few departments, they come flooding out through, I now know after the article came out, I found Tumblr was a vehicle. They, they, a lot of these ideas were sort of nurtured. There was a kind of like a lab leak hypothesis that Tumblr was the place where these viral uh, ideas of, of the new social identity were, were uh, fomented. Um, and then they came out into all over the university, and then from the university, because you unfortunately hired people from our universities, um, brought them into everything. So uh, you're right that there are many other causes, but even the other causes get mixed up in social media and transmuted into much more lethal um, forms, lethal to our institutions. On that not happy note, uh, but, but, but very relevant, I want to thank John for a very illuminating conversation. Thank you all for coming. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at NYU Stern School of Business. He has co-founded organizations and collaborations that apply social and moral social psychology to help groups and systems work better, including heterodoxacademy.org, openmindplatform.org, and ethicalsystems.org. He is the author of The Happiness Hypothesis and The Righteous Mind, and co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, where he was previously a national correspondent. Before his time at The Atlantic, Goldberg was a Middle East and Washington correspondent for The New Yorker, and he has also written for The New York Times Magazine and The Washington Post. Goldberg is the author of Prisoners, A Story of Friendship and Terror. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.